When a man looks through a microscope and sees the complexity of a human cell, he should conclude that God designed it. When he observes a hummingbird or watches a beautiful sunset, he should see the powerful hand of God in it. And if he examines his own heart and mind, he'll have a feeling there's a God out there. These are examples of evidence for the existence of God. One term used for this type of evidence is general revelation. It's a revelation because it's things which reveal God's existence and power. And we say general because it's about things which can be seen by the general population, everyone. If we look carefully, today's reading has a number of references to this general revelation of God to man. There's evidence in the world around him, evidence in blessings he receives, and evidence even in his own heart. We'll take a look at these. We'll see what the proper response of man should be and what it usually is. Then we'll think about the different way of seeing things that God's people have. We'll start then with some examples of what God does. What God does. The first one is beauty. So we're starting in verse 11. It says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's a God who makes beautiful things. Now some aspects of God's nature have been imprinted on us. We, we say we're made in his image. And one of these aspects is an ability to appreciate beauty. We might see beauty in nature, artwork, music, um, architecture, literature, and even in certain people we might say someone is beautiful, either on the outside or beautiful inwardly, or both. You might remember Jesus, in one illustration, used the beauty of lilies to show God's handiwork. Atheism makes a lot of noise, but it can never explain the existence of all the beauty in the world. The unnecessary beauty, I call it. It also says here, God makes beautiful things in their time. This reminds us of the theme that we looked at last week. There's an appointed time for everything, and that includes the growth, blooming, and death of a single flower. Karen and I went to see the sunset, the sunset, the sunrise this morning, and uh, it turned out to be too cloudy anyway. But it was nice to be down there first thing. And we looked over the river and we saw 
Liverpool's great Anglican Cathedral. It's one of the largest cathedrals in the world. And in terms of uh, Anglican cathedrals, it's maybe it's maybe the second largest in the world. And we remember that God ordained its building and its completion. He's also determined its lifetime, its dereliction, and its eventual demolition. People in the future will say, "Do you remember that building? It was beautiful." In its time. But the beauty in creation alone should move people to look for who the Creator is. Let's look at a second example eternity in the heart. So, in the middle of verse 11, it says, God has put eternity into the hearts of mankind. What does that mean? Well, this is another example of a shadow of God's character being built into us. He exists in eternity. He had no beginning and will have no end. And humans, being the only creatures made in his image, have a curiosity about eternity. Other creatures don't wonder who made the world? My beloved dog Max doesn't ponder about the issues of life after death. But we do. Many minds in history have committed themselves to trying to give answers to these big questions. Now this book of Solomon's is nothing less than an exploration of the big issues of our existence. We want answers to life's big questions. We feel this process of deterioration and death is somehow unnatural. Not how it was meant to be. And the very fact a person has these questions should direct them to thoughts of an eternal God. Let's move on. Gifts of God next. Gifts of God. Have a look at uh, verse 13 now. It gives some examples of the gifts of God to man. There's food, drink and work. It's the, it's the common experience of the human race uh, to um, experience these three things. Now... Having said that, we shouldn't take for granted these things because we have them. Some people in this world struggle to have enough food. Some have difficulty getting clean drinking water. And some either can't find work or are unable to work. Now if during someone's life they have had enough food and water and they have been able to work they should be thankful for it. If you have a, a, a quick look at verse 25 in the previous chapter, it says that apart from God, no one can eat or have any enjoyment. Everything good in their life is from God. 
Oh, look, it's obvious that many people don't take pleasure in their work. Solomon knew this. I mean, in the previous chapter, he was bemoaning you know, the pointlessness of life's efforts and including hard work. <laughs> and all that is still true. All that is still true. What he's recommending now to the people of this world is to try and enjoy life while they can. It's better that people try to find a way to enjoy work. Sometimes, usually because of other people rather than the job itself, it's pretty impossible for some to be happy in their job. But if they do find a way to enjoy their work and they do enjoy good food and the like, they should understand these things are gifts from God. Happiness. Let's look at the issue of happiness. Now back in uh, chapter 3, now uh, we see more uh, general advice for mankind. You can see in verse 12, he recommends people try to be happy in every aspect of their lives. And there's, there is uh, genuine happiness all over the place, even among those who ignore God. You see it when people pass their driving test. You see it when they are preparing to go on holiday. You see it when they fall in love. I know some people who find happiness in criminal activity, like drug dealing and theft. Now, in my experience, people who make money through crime have a kind of happiness. You know, they, they love to drive around the area in their uh, expensive cars. They seem to get a kick out of giving other people the impression that they've succeeded in life, which, of course, is a huge joke. But, look, I've seen a lot of unhappiness in them too. So despite their cocky attitude, many suffer with their consciences. They have guilty feelings, which they have to either bury or run away from. And there's also the constant risk of being caught and going to jail. Solomon's message to those people and everyone else is to try to do good in life. Now friends, no one, least of all me, is saying the good works of the people in this world impress God. All their good efforts are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. But people outwardly doing good makes for a better society, at least. And the Lord's people have to uh, live for a season in these societies. And so it's, uh, I'm sure it's part of God's purpose to provide uh, an environment that isn't completely evil uh, for his people to exist in. Now again... If people are able to find happiness in any walk of life, including doing good for others, it's proper for them to thank God for it all. Let's think about God's enduring works. God's enduring works as our next example. So this... Uh, this example of how God reveals himself to mankind, we can see that in verse 14. 
Whatever God does lasts forever. And the world can see some of the enduring works of God. Do you remember when we were in chapter 1? I mentioned the cycles of life. We'll have a look again if you want. Chapter 1 and verse 4, it begins. Generations of people come and go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and sets each day. The water cycle continues, so on. When man observes the permanence of the world around him, his reaction should be to acknowledge the existence of an almighty power in heaven. Our final example, man's mortality. Man's mortality. Example of that which should drive a man to go on looking for God is mortality. This takes up a, a large chunk of our reading and it's from verses 18 to 22. At the same time that God has planted thoughts of eternity in man's heart, it's also very clear man is not immortal. The sickness of sin which man is born with has a mortality rate of 100%. Everyone dies. This is a, it's a reality no one can ignore forever. Now admittedly, it is easier today to brush aside thoughts of death. Throughout history there have been great advances in medicine such that no matter what disease I might contract, no matter which of my organs fail, no matter what type of accident I have, assuming I'm still alive, I can receive medical help. I can visit a GP, walk into a hospital, be taken to a hospital in an ambulance, and they'll give me drugs and they'll uh, attach me to a uh, sophisticated machines and then they'll, they'll stand around with clipboards and plan a strategy for treatment. And because there's nothing so bad they won't try to help with, people have started to put far too much faith in the medical profession and in science in general. The, the, these, these people are like demigods to some people in society. I mean, people a hundred years old can be unwell and then be made better by the doctors. It's almost that we start to convince ourselves we'll just keep getting made better. I'm sure some hundred-year-old people still think that death is something which happens to other people. We're all going to go through a period of death and in that respect, we're no different from animals, as it says in verse 18. God wants us to see that all the creatures in this world die and then see that the same thing will befall us. The end of verse 19 says we all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the animals. The Bible says man and the animals are alive because of the Spirit of God. It's sometimes called the breath of life. 
During the flood of Noah's day, the Bible tells us that every creature which had the breath of life died. Job says something similar. Job chapter 34, verses 14 and 15. Job says, If he, God, should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. What does that mean? If the spirit of God withdrew himself from the creatures of this world, every man, woman, child and animal would instantly drop down dead and eventually their carcasses would crumble to dust. From dust you were made, God tells Adam, and to dust you will return. Solomon here even addresses one of the many misconceptions about what happens when we die. Such is man's pride that one superstition would like to think that this spirit of man goes upwards. Somewhere glorious, while the same spirit in the animal must therefore go downwards. Verse 20 nails it. All go to one place. We all die, all the animals die in different locations, but we all go to that state of death, which the Bible calls the grave, or Hades, or Hades, or Sheol. Sheol. We all go to one place, and when a man stops deceiving himself, he realizes his end is no better than a dog, and maybe. He'll be jolted by the conflict between a sense of eternity in his heart and the reality that he will return to dust. And if he does this, perhaps, perhaps he will turn his efforts towards finding God who has power to give life to the dead. Examples of what God's what he does. There were examples of what God does. Let's have a look at man's response. So they were examples of um, God's works and some examples of his general revelation to man. I want to ask you the question, how do people react given all the things we've looked at? Now, with each example, you, you, you maybe noticed I, uh, I gave an indication of why that thing should point someone towards God. Is that what happens? Do you think most people in this world are searching for God? Solomon, in verse 16, gives an example of how man has responded Instead of justice and righteousness, he sees wickedness. God places all these clues to his existence and power in man's path. Yet the natural response is to ignore them and to continue to live in a state of sinfulness. 
The proper reaction which should take place in a person is fear of God. You can see at the end of verse 14, the people are expected to come to this fear of God. They should fear because of his almighty power. What kind of person would not tremble at the thought of being accountable to a God who created the whole universe out of nothing? Instead of fear, most people choose an unholy confidence in themselves. If they do believe in God, it's a fairy tale God described to them by liberal Christians. A God who thinks they're doing just fine. A God who will always be there for them. Some of them will even accept a God who made the world. But when you talk about a God who is on his throne, before whom all the world should bow the knee in submission, they don't want him. They don't want him. Let me read this from the book of Romans in the first chapter. I'm reading from verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 onwards. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. All people who live are confronted with God's general revelation in this world. The wonder of the created world around them is enough. But instead of looking to where it all points, they choose to suppress these truths deep down inside. And for this reason, they are looked on by God as being those without any excuse for their rebellion. For those impenitent sinners, those who insist on suppressing the truth about God, all Solomon can offer is some advice about getting through life. In verse 12, he, 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 verse 12, he, he describes their sad state. They should live their lives as best they can because that's all they have. He says there's nothing better for them to do. What a Tragedy. What a tragedy to think. The people who are witnessed to on the streets, the young people in the colleges where our young folk attend, the people in the workplace, all those people all think. They have a life that is worth something. And they have nothing. What a tragedy, friends. 
And what happens then? What happens when it's all over? What happens for them? Verse 17 gives the answer. Judgment. A meeting in the future between God and every man and woman who's ever lived. You'll note it doesn't say God will judge the people, then decide who gets eternally saved and who doesn't. God already knows. The judgment is almost a formality. God's justice demanding he puts each one of them in the dock. If it were an earthly courtroom, there'd be stacks and stacks of paper representing the records of a person's sin. You can imagine the prosecution begins with the question, what did you do when confronted with these obvious signs of the creator God? Some people stand there, bemused, in shock. Some people rant and rave against God the judge, still believing they can fend him off. Some tell God they've been good Christians and they reel off all the great things they've done for him. And some decide they've changed their mind and would now like to repent. Thank you. But that's no longer an option. The sentence for all of them is guilty. Guilty. And so they're led away. Stretching before them an eternity of time in which to mourn their hardness of heart in the face of God's gracious revelation to them. I said we'd look at how God's people respond, God's elect, God's elect, those who were earmarked for salvation before the world was even made. Those who've been born again. Well, we entered this world like everyone else. The instances of God's general revelation were, were all around us too. Some of you will have tried to ignore these signs just like other people. Well, you, may, you may have been like me and knew there was a God from a very young age, although maybe not knowing exactly what he was like. If you're sitting here today as a disciple of Jesus Christ, it means God intended to both create you and eventually bring you into his fold. So whether it was from a young child or later on in life, you, you started to take notice of these revelations of God. God had mercy on you. He had mercy on you and not someone else. And you saw things differently from the other people. I have to, I have to pause here to make an important point. Look, this general revelation of God to mankind is enough for people to know there is a God. If, having seen these things, they don't then spend their whole lives seeking him with their whole hearts, they stand guilty. As we just read, they have no excuse for not seeking God. However, this general revelation does not give people the whole truth. 
These signposts don't inform people about Jesus Christ or his work of atonement. General revelation is not enough. But there is more revelation that God has been known to reveal to man. A fuller type, a a greater degree. And some people call this, uh, they categorise it as God's special revelation. Now we know, look, going back, uh, going back, God began to make himself known particularly to a, to a specific family. Over the generations, they became the people of the Hebrews. They began to record what uh, God had done with them. And the, 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 um, there was the arrival of the Messiah. There was the formation then, the launch of the true kingdom of God on earth. And eventually, the completed word of God came into being. We had a Bible. God equips certain people to delve into the scriptures and come out with the gospel message, which they hopefully preach enthusiastically. And although this preaching is foolishness to most people, to us who are saved, it was a powerful message from God's throne. Now, I know each of us has a different story, but God's usual way of saving his elect people is through the preaching of the cross. God, in his mercy, sought you and me out and through someone else communicated his special revelation to us. We learned the seriousness of our sin and the penalty for it. We heard about the Messiah, Jesus Christ the Lord. And we believed his claims to be the saviour. Our lives as children of God are dramatically different from those of the people of this world. By By the grace of God, we developed a proper fear of God. One which allows us to approach him with a proper mixture of reverence and love. And even as those who've been objects of God's special saving revelation our understanding of those aspects of God's general revelation of himself is different now also when we consider beauty in say art or music our soul our souls are are quickly inclined towards thoughts of God what's that hymn say that um, loved with everlasting love I think the hymn is called and some beautiful lines and one speaking of the experience of the one who's been born again and how he sees things differently. The line says, something lives in every hue, every colour that Christless eyes have never seen. It's like everything comes alive. The sense of eternity within us doesn't leave us with their endless unanswered questions. We know the God of eternity in a personal way. We know he created all things at the beginning. And we believe his promise he's going to allow us to live forever with him. When we enjoy food and drink and all the good things in life, we give hearty thanks to God because of the understanding he's given us. We thank him even for the trials and afflictions he sends our way. 
We don't have to take Solomon's best advice and get through life by struggling to make ourselves happy in whatever we do. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. One of the marks of God's presence in our souls is joy. So that the closer we draw to God, the more joyful we are likely to become. When we see the everlasting things of God, we rejoice, we marvel at all he establishes. Having confidence he does it for his glory, our good, or both. And finally, we do understand our mortality. We know we'll die like the animals God made. The breath of life will Leave us as it leaves the beast of the field. But we have a blessed hope. God promises through the prophet Daniel that in due time we shall rise again. We are special to God, which is why in his mercy he exposed us to his special revelation. And then he used that to bring us to repentance and faith. And it's in this volume of his truth. We have confidence that our resurrection will be to life eternal. Thanks be to God for revealing these things to us. Amen.